Hey there, I'm Brittany, and welcome to the Cape Cod Church Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, you can visit our website at capecodchurch.com. In the meantime, we hope you enjoy this message in our current series. Well, good morning, everyone, and happy Memorial Day weekend. (laughs) It is really good. Really good to be here with you this morning on this beautiful weekend. And I want to give a special shout out to, to um, if you're here this morning and you're actually, you call Cape Cod Church your summer church and you're back for the first time in person in a long time, welcome home. We are so glad that you are here today. And we thank you for bringing the sun with you from wherever you were. It's awesome. And you and maybe every tourist this side of Boston who also joined us this weekend. Um, There are actually two people uh, who missed out on the incredibly long line at Starbucks this weekend. That would be Pastor Ben and my brother Cody. They are actually away for two weeks on a missions trip together in Thailand and the Philippines very cool. They're actually visiting a lot of places that you uh, as a church support uh, around the world. Uh, This week they got to visit one of the sports camps that we help sponsor. They've been talking with local pastors who we support um, and they're going to get the chance to attend the graduation of a Bible college and dual business program uh, graduation this coming week that you actually helped establish that, uh, that college and that program for pastors out there in uh, Thailand. So that's really, really cool. They're going to get to see that firsthand. Um, And hopefully next week, a pastor might have a little bit more of an update for you. Maybe even uh, he'll get a chance to say hi via video. So in the meantime, though, I have the privilege today, because they are away, to launch a new series with you today. Uh, Today, as Pastor Tom mentioned, we are starting a new series on the book of Philippians, and this is actually going to carry us throughout the entire summer. So all of June and July and a little bit of August, we'll be exploring Philippians together. And I'm really excited about this series. And if, even if you have not been coming to church for very long, or you're not very familiar with the Bible, you may have heard some of the verses in Philippians. Because despite the fact that it is a relatively small letter in the Bible, it's just four chapters long, it is chock full of some crowd favorite verses. So even if you haven't been in church very long, you may have heard of some of these, or you might have seen them printed on like a Christian flip calendar somewhere. You might have heard things like this, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. That's in Philippians 4. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Also in Philippians, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely and admirable, think on these things. And then this one, which some of you may be familiar with, to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's quite a famous verse from Philippians. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me and then you will shine among them like stars in the sky. Philippians is full of inspiring verses. Some of these crowd favorites that have been passed down and put on tattoos and bumper stickers and everything. But it's more than just a collection of inspirational sayings. And I'm excited to explore it because behind this letter is an incredible community of people who have something to teach us. And in particular, if you're here today and you find yourself at a spot in your life where you feel a little bit bored by your faith journey, 
or maybe just by your life in general, or you feel like stuck and stagnant in your faith. Or maybe you would say like, actually, I don't know, I just, I kind of feel like I'm doing pretty good. <laughs> what should I do? Like what's next for me? If, you are, if any of those resonate with you, Philippians has something exciting to share with you because behind all of these beautiful inspirational verses is a surprising truth from a really incredible historic community. Perhaps one of the reasons that Philippians is so inspiring is because the author, Paul, was really happy when he wrote it. Uh, in fact, the letter is, uh, the tone of it is warm and encouraging. What we call the book of Philippians is really a letter written by this man, Paul. And Paul was an epic church planter and apostle who went around traveling city to city, spreading the good news that Jesus had been resurrected. And what Paul would do is he would travel from place to place, he would share this news, and as little communities of new believers started to crop up, he would oftentimes stay in one place for a couple of years and help build them up, help encourage them, help them navigate through some of their questions, help them organize into a community that we would now call a church. Back then they didn't call that, it was just starting, it was this kind of new phenomenon, but Paul would travel from place to place. And then when he would leave a community, though, he would often stay in contact with them as he traveled to other locations and started other churches or encouraged other churches. And oftentimes he would write letters to stay in contact. Many times these letters would be inspired by a specific issue or event. A church had a big theological question that they were wrestling with, and Paul would write to help them wade through that. Sometimes he would write to be critical or critique a moral issue that they were having in the community that he had heard about. And so he would write them to help them navigate through that, to correct them in that. And sometimes he would write to encourage them or to correct some clarifications that they needed as a community. But what's unique about the letter to the Philippians is that there is no specific issue or problem that Paul is writing to address. In fact, Paul writes the letter to this church in Philippi as a thank you letter. Paul, when he's writing this, was an old man near the end of his ministry, and we know from the letter he says it himself that he was in prison. That he was in prison, we don't know exactly where, but he was in prison at this time, and his friends in Philippi, this small church community, had sent a financial gift to him. They had sent one of their church members named Epaphroditus to travel to visit Paul and to provide for him because in that time, when you were in a Roman prison, they didn't provide any food to you. You were allowed to receive visitors though. So what people would do is they would rely on the generosity and the thoughtfulness of friends and family to make sure that they survived while they were in prison. And the Philippian church, hearing that Paul was imprisoned, sends Epaphroditus with a financial gift so that Paul can survive in prison. And in response, Paul writes back. He sends Epaphroditus back with a letter of thanks and a few more chapters of encouragement. And this is how he starts. This letter is from Paul and Timothy, who was with him, slaves of Christ Jesus. He says, I am writing to all of God's holy people in Philippi who belong to Christ Jesus, including the church leaders and deacons. May God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. So he starts with this greeting from himself and Timothy. And then he says this, he dives right in. Every time I think of you, I give thanks to God. Whenever I pray, I make my requests for all of you with joy. 
For you have been my partners in spreading the good news about Christ from the time you first heard it until now. And I am certain that God, who began the good work within you, will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. And then, if that weren't enough, he keeps going and he just lays on the praise. Verse 7 says this, So it is right that I should feel as I do about all of you, for you have a special place in my heart. You share with me the special favor of God, both in my imprisonment and defending and confirming the truth of the good news. God knows how much I love you and long for you with the tender compassion of Christ Jesus. Now, I don't know if pastors are allowed to have favorites, but what we do seem to get from the text is that Paul kind of has a favorite church, and it's the Philippians. Many scholars have noted that the entire tone of the letter is warm and encouraging and actually includes a lot of friendship language, language that was personal and intimate, intimate in ways that we just don't find in other letters. In fact, if you look at these verses, take a look at verse 3. Every time I think of you, I give thanks to my God. Now, how many people do you have in your life that you could say, every time I think of you, I thank God for you? I hope you have some. But it might not be everybody. But Paul says this about the Philippians. In verse 7, it is right that I should feel this way because you have a special place in my heart. Every time he prays about them, he prays with joy. That's what we call unapologetic gushing. You have a special place in my heart. And finally, verse 8, which is so expressive. God knows how much I love you and long for you with the tender compassion of Christ Jesus. That word, uh, compassion, literally, in its original language, actually means something like innards or guts. It was a Greek idiom for a deep sense of affection that wells up from the inside, what we would call like from the heart. And that is the language that Paul chooses to use. It's so loving, so expressive. And it's the kind of language that if like one of the other churches got a hold of it and they were reading this, it'd be like, what the heck? Paul never talks to us this way. He totally loves the Philippians the best. Actually, I like to imagine that that's why this letter became so popular and circulated around. They're like, did you see this? Look how he wrote to the Philippians. And now we have it all through history, so thank goodness. But Paul is unapologetic, and he's upfront about his affection. And it turns out he has good reason to have such tender feelings towards the Philippians, to love them so incredibly much. There's evidence in the text that not only did the Philippians provide for Paul this one time in his current imprisonment, but actually they have financially sponsored his ministry and his mission around the region all throughout his ministry since they, this church was started. In fact, the church in Philippi was the first church to be planted in Europe. It was the first church that Paul planted in a city that did not have predomin a predominant or large Jewish community. It was predominantly a Gentile church made up of a diverse group of individuals. And so it's a crazy and cool story. The first time that the gospel breaks into the non-Jewish world in this big sense. You can read all about it in Acts 16. It's a wild story. It starts with this strong businesswoman named Lydia who's converted to Christianity. She gets it, and then she starts to, um, hosting the church in her own home. It's an incredible, incredible story that you can find in Acts 16. And every evidence that we have from the text suggests 
that from the very start, these people in Philippi got it, that they have been faithful, chasing after God, loving other people the way that they have been loved, looking out for one another, looking out for Paul in the most practical of ways. By all evidence, it seems that these are people who got it, who understood the love of Jesus, were so inspired by it that they wanted to see it spread throughout the region and they were pursuing after Christ. And they've had their own issues along the way and we'll get to some of those later in the letter. But on the whole, it seems like this church is doing really well. And so Paul writes this letter that is just effusive in its love and affection and tenderness and praise. He is beyond happy. with how the Philippians are doing, because they're killing it. So he gushes about them. Have you ever noticed how uh, some people in your life have catchphrases? Like something that that person just always, always says. Like when you hear that phrase, you think of that person in your life. We have a couple people on our staff at Cape Cod Church who have catchphrases. And I'll pick on a few of them today. I'll start with uh, Pastor Tom, who you got to hear from a little bit earlier. Pastor Tom, one of my favorite, actually, Tom has quite a few catchphrases, but one of my favorites is when we're working in the office, if Tom's leaving, if there's anybody else left in the office, on his way out the door, he'll say, no overtime pay, and then he'll (laughs) hit the door. It's awesome. It's also ironic because Tom is almost always the last person in the building because he's an incredibly hard worker, but I love that. No overtime pay. It reminds me of Tom when I hear that. We also have our, our kids' town director, Leiko, who she's away on vacation this week, so I can pick on her and she can't stop me. Leiko doesn't have a catchphrase per se, but she does have a signature emoji. If you're familiar with text emojis, every time I text with Leiko, I can predict beyond a shadow of a doubt that she's going to text me at some point or another the nerd glasses emoji. You guys know what I'm talking about? It has like buck teeth, nerd glasses, tape in the middle. She manages to fit it in there every single time that we text. It's awesome in ways that you like you wouldn't even predict. I'm like, you know what? That really works for like, oh, I love that. And if she doesn't text me that, I'm like, gosh, I hope she's okay. Is she sick? What's going on? But like, oh, that's her, that's her signature is the nerd glasses emoji. But my favorite, above all, is our executive director, Mark McSherry. Now, one thing you should know about Mark, uh, when I first started working at Cape Cod Church, I was an intern, and Mark was actually my manager. Um, And you should know, like, Mark is incredibly gifted in this way. He is an encourager, a supportive manager. Almost everything I know about how to be uh, an encouraging manager of people, a supportive individual in that way, is because of Mark McSherry. So his catchphrase is very fitting to that gifting and to his personality because Mark has a catchphrase that he says, I honestly, he might say it like a dozen times a day. Every time we have a conversation, I could tell you like nine times out of 10, it almost always ends with this phrase. And it doesn't matter what we're talking about. We could be talking about like some good story that happened in my ministry. We could be talking about something challenging that uh, I'm working through or something that's just really tough and trying to navigate through. Mark could even be coming in my office to let me know that I went over budget last month and to like lay down the law. He will still end with this catchphrase. Mark will look at you and he'll say, you're awesome. Just like that, eyebrows raised every single time, you're awesome. 
And that's how he ends the conversation. Sometimes it's the whole conversation. Like every once in a while, Mark will hear about something that happened, and he'll just walk up. I'll be like typing at my desk, minding my business. He'll walk up to my doorway, he'll look at me, and he'll go, you're awesome. And he'll just walk away. It's awesome. (laughs) I love this about Mark. It's such a gift. He's such an encourager, and it's so fitting. And it's kind of what Paul is doing in this letter to the Philippians. He's looking at him, and he's like, you guys are so awesome. I am so proud of you. You are doing so well. You're awesome. And you know the thing that I love about this so much, honestly? When I read about the Philippians church, when I read Paul's writing to the church in Philippi, honestly, it reminds me of you. It reminds me of Cape Cod Church as a whole, as a community. The way that you love other people, love one another, which I get to watch every single week, the way that you give generously to care for other people's lives, I'm blown away by it. And no, we're not perfect as a community and we've fallen along the way, but on the whole, like, I'm incredibly proud to be a part of this place. I've said that probably dozens of times before, because it's just awesome to watch. It's just awesome. Like, if churches got to be assigned letters in the Bible as spirit animals, I would assign this church Philippi. And I don't know, I might be biased, but I don't, I don't think I'm, I'm wrong. And I don't know, does that sound a little bit unspiritual? <laughs> like, you're awesome. But, I don't know, Paul just spent eight verses encouraging this church, laying it down, calling it what it is. And if you grew up in a religious tradition that was more of a guilt trip, and that's like hard and weird for you to hear, I don't know, I think sometimes we're just, we're called to call it like it is. No, we're not perfect, but you've been fighting the good fight. And I don't know what your story is, but you might be here today and you just need to hear that. Like you've failed, you've fallen, but you're fighting the good fight, you're pursuing after Jesus, you're trying to live well, and in general, like you're moving in the right direction and you might just need to hear somebody say, you're awesome, you're awesome, and that's awesome. And that's kind of what Paul is doing for the Philippian church. But, He doesn't stop there. It's like, okay, so now what? Verses one through eight are, you're awesome. But despite the fact that Philippians are doing really well, Paul keeps going. And he doesn't just pat them on the back for four chapters. This isn't just like, you know, nice inspirational sayings that are really good for cross-stitching on a doily. He has something to say. And so we should lean in because the Philippian church is a test case for what do you say to the Christian or the person who's doing pretty well? Like you're on your way, you're going in the right direction. What do you say? What Paul does next is surprising and it's easy to miss. Look again at what he says in verse six. Right there in the middle of his love fest, he says this, I am certain that God who began the good work within you will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. Wait, what? Finish the work? 
who began the work and will finish it, Paul, I thought you were happy with how we were doing. What do you mean God will continue? Things are looking good. But it's like Paul says, you are awesome, but you're not done. And on first read, this could seem like a subtle way of introducing a critique, like, okay, I see what Paul's doing. He's been buttering them up to encourage them to keep going because they're doing okay, but the reality is they're not there, and he's just wanting to kind of charge them on. It's kind of <laughs> like, we might imagine this like the art teacher who comes and looks at your project over your shoulder and is like, yeah, it's, uh, it's getting there. Nobody else, just me. That totally happened to me in painting. Which really means it's not there. It's not even close. But keep going, and maybe someday it'll look, resemble something close to art. I don't know. But I don't actually think that that's what, ha what is happening here. Underneath Paul's statement and the whole of this letter is a fundamental truth about the Christian life that we often miss if we're not looking for it. We have often thought, and maybe you've even been taught this, that Christianity is all about getting saved and then waiting until you die and then hopefully you get into heaven. And oh, by the way, like while you're waiting, just try and be as good as possible, I guess, because I don't know, it's the Christian thing to do and it makes God happy. We kind of touched on this briefly last week. Some of us have been taught, some of us have thought that Christianity is like a waiting room. It's just a waiting room that you sit in until you can get to heaven someday and everything is perfect and I hope I make it there. But in the meantime, I'm just sitting here. But the thing about waiting rooms is that nobody likes them. Nobody likes a waiting room. Waiting rooms, it feels like the music is always terrible. I've, they try and play something generic that everybody likes and that means that nobody ends up liking it. Waiting rooms, I feel like the chairs are always uncomfortable. If you have a waiting room, like a doctor's office with really comfortable chairs, please let me know because I have never once experienced this. And tell me if I'm wrong, I feel like waiting rooms always have an odd smell to them. It either smells like bleach and like very strong, strong cleaner or it smells like something that you wish they had covered up with bleach and really strong cleaner. It's like, uh, either way, I'm not loving this. What are they covering up? What is the smell? Okay, this is a, a true story. Uh, one time I was at a doctor's office. It was an asthma care center. And I was sitting in the waiting room and it smelled like very, very strongly of cigarettes, which if you know anything about asthma, not great for asthmatics. Um, so I'm sitting there in the waiting room waiting to be seen and the doctor comes out with a bottle of Febreze and sprays it all throughout the waiting room while I'm sitting there. Needless to say, it did not make it smell better. It just smelled like Febreze cigarettes, which wasn't awesome uh, at that asthma care center. Um, but in, in any case, like, people don't really enjoy sitting in waiting rooms. I mean, the mo most interesting thing you can do is read a magazine, and it seems like they're always outdated, like pre-pandemic beauty tips from 2015. What good are those now? Nobody likes a waiting room. And if that's what Christian life is like, it's no wonder that a lot of people don't like church and don't want to spend their time in church. Because if life is a waiting room, I might as well go out and have some fun. But it turns out that was not the understanding or the perspective of the first Christians. And it's written all over this letter. And here's why. In the first century, something happened when people started to believe in Jesus, they started 
to change. Because the crazy thing that happened after the resurrection of Jesus was that God then sent his own spirit to earth. This is something that nobody could have predicted and nobody did predict. It's the crazy kind of thing. Like, if this sounds bizarre to you, that makes sense because it was bizarre. There was no Jewish tradition that predicted that God would come to dwell and reside within human beings through his personal spirit. Nobody expected this. In fact, it would have been a lot simpler and less confusing if we didn't have to try and understand it or explain it. It's the kind of thing that was so unexpected and so bizarre that it rings of truth because theologians have been trying to explain the Trinity for two millennia and they still are struggling because it's like, what? How do we understand this? It's the kind of thing that you only try and explain or try and put out there if it happened, because that's what happened. Jesus rose from the dead, and then God sent his spirit to reside in human beings. And people were left to grapple with, like, what does this mean? What does this mean? But people were being changed. The evidence was there. Because here's what it meant in very practical terms. People who believed in Jesus started to be transformed. They looked different. They acted different. God was doing something in them because that was part of the deal. It turns out God did not just send his son to die for the promise of eternity someday. He also sent his son so that you and I could have a personal relationship with him now through his spirit. So Jesus is not just the promise of some eternal destiny, it is also an invitation to a new life of transformation Now, when you accept Jesus, you're not just securing your future. You are also embarking on a new journey because the Christian life is not a waiting room. It's a race. And the finish line is to become like Jesus. And it ends in eternity, but God invites us to it now. He gives us the power to run now to become like him. It's like you and I were benched, but God put us back in the race and then he gave us wings so that we could fly, so that we could run it. It's a beautiful life. It's a beautiful journey of discovery. It's exciting. That's why at Cape Cod Church we call it a journey of discovery. It's a life, it's the kind of life that's worth living because there's a lot of things to explore and encounter. We have a race to run. We're invited to run to new lengths, to reach new heights, to become more and more the people that we were intended to be, the people, kind of people that we dream that we could be, conquering the things in our life that we struggle with, that we hope someday we can let go of. And in a culture that settles for good enough, that settles for cycles of brokenness, and, well, that's just who I am, or I've tried and I just can't. That's just who my mom was. That's just who my dad was. This is who my family is. So this is what I'm going to be in a culture that settles for that. We have the opportunity, the privilege to say, I actually don't know who I'm going to be in 10 years, but I sure know it's not the same person I am today because I have the opportunity to run a race, to progress, to become more like Jesus through his power and his spirit. It's also 
why one of our core values here at Cape Cod Church is a culture of celebration. Nobody likes a waiting room, but have you ever been to a marathon? The people on the sidelines on the marathon are having a good time. What do you do? You're cheering people on. People are going nuts because why? Because there are things to celebrate. There's something praiseworthy here. You're cheering them on in their progress. Every mile marker is an exciting thing. So it's an exciting thing to behold and to watch and to cheer each other on. And at Cape Cod Church, we say we want to build a culture of celebration because this isn't a waiting room. You can have way more fun than, than just flipping through the magazines. You can be loud. You can be joyful because there is a lot in this life to celebrate because we're not just waiting for the future. This isn't just a future hope. God has given you new power and new opportunity today in this life, and that is something worth celebrating. And it's one of the reasons that Paul's letter to the Philippians is known as a letter of joy, because he's watching them run the race, and he's so excited. He is beyond happy with how they are doing and the progress they've made and the good works that they've done. And it's like he's watching them and he's like, yes, 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 yes. You have done so well. Look at all of the things you've done. Keep going. You're awesome, but you're not done. Keep running the race. Who knows what you could discover? Who knows what you could uncover, the good that you could do, the impact you could have? Keep running the race because you're awesome, but you're not done. So what does it look like? What does it look like to press on? Because Paul's beyond happy, but he invites the Philippians to take a step beyond. And what does that look like for us? For the Christian who's doing pretty well, and maybe that's not you today, but no matter where you're at in your race, what does it look like to take your next step? Here's the advice that Paul gives to the Philippians. He actually prays for them, and he prays for one thing. He says, God knows how much I love you and long for you with the tender compassion of Christ Jesus. Then he says, I pray that your love would overflow more and more, that you will keep on growing in knowledge and understanding. For I want you to understand what really matters so that you may live pure and blameless lives until the day of Christ's return. May you always be filled with the fruit of your salvation, the righteous character produced in your life by Jesus Christ. For this will bring much glory and praise to God. I pray that your love will abound more and more. Paul prays that the Philippians who are doing well, who are running the race, would progress in love. It's the singular marker of Christian maturity. It's the single key, according to Paul, to become more like God and to run the race well. He says, grow in love. It's the key to all of it. In fact, the scholars, when they look at this passage, they've noted that when you look at the whole paragraph, it's actually like one cascading uh, train of thought of cause and effect, starting from the top. He says, I pray that your love would overflow so that you can understand what matters. That if you abound in love, you will be able to discern better right and wrong, that you can understand what matters and choose the good thing. 
And he says, so that you can live well and blameless. If you abound in love, you will live more purely. And so that you will be filled with good works, the evidence or fruit that God is at work in your life. Because according to Paul, someone who loves actually evaluates right or wrong better. Someone who loves actually sees more clearly and chooses, is more likely to choose what is good and right and perfect. Paul says, the stronger your love, the clearer your perspective, and the better your decisions. Uh, have you ever been to the eye doctor or ever gotten your eyes checked? At, somebody raised their hand, I love that. Uh, or ever gotten your eyes checked even at the primary care? Maybe you don't remember this uh, if you only did it when you were really young. But when I was in uh, Scotland, I actually had my eyes checked. Um, I was in Scotland for divinity school and I was worried. I just felt like my vision had become like a little bit blurred sometimes and I was just a little bit concerned and so I just went to get them checked. And um, they, did the, they did the whole test. It turns out, and this is kind of embarrassing, they're like, you have perfect 20-20 vision but you've been staring at books too long and too hard. <laughs> I was like, all right, nerd alert, getting out of here. But if you remember when you go to get your eyes checked, it was kind of a cool experience because what they do is they have you look at a piece of paper magnified and a word or a letter. And at the beginning, it's very blurry. It's very blurry. And then what they do is they add a lens to make it a little bit more clear. And they ask you, like, is it clear now? And maybe it's like a little bit more clear, but still blurry. Like, no, it's still blurry. Then they add another lens, a little bit clearer, another lens, a little bit clearer. And they keep doing this until they get to a point where you would say, yep, it's perfectly clear. I can see it perfectly. And this is how they evaluate your vision. And this is what Paul is saying about the power of love. Paul is saying, when you love, when you are strong in love, when you learn to love well, it clarifies your vision. Love is the lens through which we see the world as it truly is. Love is the lens through which you can most clearly see the way that the world is, what God wants you to do. It is this surprising the surprising argument at a time where love was not seen as a particularly high value in the Roman society. But Paul says, love is how you see clearly because this is how our Savior treated us. So when you see according to love, you see like God sees you. And if you see like God sees the world, you see more clearly, you can better understand what is right and what is wrong. You can better choose the good you can better run the race because here's what I know. I'm not much of a runner, but running a marathon, running a cross-country race is a lot harder when you are blind. When your vision is blurry, it's a lot harder to run the race. And you might still be in the race, but you might take a couple wrong turns. You might take the wrong fork in the road. You might stumble along the way. You'll make progress, but it won't be as swift and as sure and as certain. And Paul is saying, if you want to run the race well, fine tune your love. And this isn't like something that you put on the glasses one time and it's like everything changes. This is something you work at day in and day out, one lens at a time, one day more clearer, the next day, applying love to your current situation. That's why it says grow in knowledge and wisdom because you need knowledge and wisdom to figure out how to apply love actively in your life. And every day that you do, every day that you grow in love, and this is my prayer for the Philippian church, 
As your love abounds, you will see more clearly and you will become more like Christ. If you want to run the race well, abound in love, grow in love to a church who's doing really, really well. You're awesome, but you're not done. And here's my prayer for you. Progress in love. That's Paul's encouragement to the church. For the rest of the summer, we're going to be exploring this idea of fine-tuning your love. We're going to look at some great examples in Philippians of love. Most of all, Jesus Christ. In this beautiful hymn or poem in chapter 2 where it talks about the love of Christ and what that looks like, we're also going to look at some spiritual mentors, human mentors, that Paul raises up for us. People like Timothy and Epaphroditus who have loved well. He's going to point to them as examples. We're going to talk about how love changes your perspective, how it changes our view of suffering in times of difficulty, and we're going to talk about some of the results, the good works, the fruit, the evidence of love, how it leads to humility, how it leads to communities that are united as one in unity, and we're going to talk about how love leads to joy, how love leads to joy even in difficult circumstances. But before we get there, today, as we kind of start this journey, my encouragement to you, week one, is to just take stock of where you're at in the race. Maybe you're here and you're like, I didn't even know this was a race. I didn't know that I had all of that potential at my fingertips. I thought I was just waiting this thing out. Well, if that's you, maybe today you just need to get in the race. Maybe you're here, you've been discouraged, There's things in your life you've been trying to work through and you just feel like you've made no progress and maybe today you just need to hear, keep going. Because as Paul says in verse six, God promises to finish the work in you. And it's not an overnight process, it's day by day, year by year, but he's going to give you the power and the ability to take steps forward in the right direction and someday all of us make it to the finish line. Someday. In eternity, Jesus walks us all there. He brings us all past the finish line. But you are not running alone. He is the one who is at work in your soul. And maybe you're here this morning and you've been bored and burnt out and stuck. And you're not sure where you're at in the race. Maybe you've kind of just been sitting in the middle or maybe even backsliding a little bit. And today you just need to ask God to work. God, I don't want to just sit still. I want to press on. I want to run the race well. Show me where I can grow. Show me this summer where you can work in my life, what things that you want to transform in me, maybe things I've given up on, but you, God, can change them. You can transform me. 